Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandok. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee, along with Daniel Horan and Alan Colt. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan is a professor of religion at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio and serves on the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Let us begin with a prayer, one penned by John Birch, a Methodist local preacher based in South Wales. For those involved in conflicts, the innocent, the guilty, the injured, orphaned, widowed, dead, politicians, peacemakers, relief workers. For those involved in conflicts, bring comfort, compassion, sustenance, repentance, forgiveness, healing, tears, love, and a peace that can endure. We ask this of you, God of wholeness, God of grace, amen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Stephen P. Millies. Steve is a professor of public theology and director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He has been active in the International Thomas Merton Society for 15 years. His most recent book is Good Intentions, a History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump, published by Liturgical Press. Massimo Fagioli, who is Professor of Historical Theology at Villanova University, says the book should be required reading for those who want to understand the complex and unique history of the relationship between Catholics and politics in the United States, from Roe versus Wade to the election of Trump. Here now is Dr. Stephen Millies speaking on our crisis of authority and Thomas Merton. Well, thank you for that very generous introduction, uh, Teresa. I do wanna note for the record as I uh, share my screen here, I'm still paying Massimo Fagioli for those very kind remarks. I, I had to space the payments out across several years, uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it was good of him to say that. I'm very grateful. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here uh, tonight with a treasured former CTU colleague, Dan Horan, and all my friends with the International Thomas Merton Society. I began reading Merton, the Seven Story Mountain specifically, uh, in days following the September 11th attacks in 2001. Uh, I just want to check here because my, there we go. I began reading Merton, the Seven Story Mountain specifically, in days following the September 11th attacks in 2001. I was living in Washington, D.C., completing my degree at the Catholic University of America. I was driving into Washington on September 11th, and I saw the black plume of smoke rising off the Pentagon in the distance as I exited the Baltimore-Washington Parkway onto New York Avenue on that clear blue morning. In the year that followed, I began to read Merton voraciously, mostly on a commute that brought me into downtown DC near the White House on the DC Metro. In quick succession after the September 11th attacks came first the anthrax mailed in letters addressed to news organizations, including one where my wife opened mail, and then the DC sniper terrorizing the DC area for three weeks, some of whose first attacks were quite near a stretch of road that I walked every day from a metro stop. I grew into a relationship with Thomas Merton during this very intense period when death and loss seemed to haunt every day. And I came to peace with these events I'm describing and to peace in my later adult life, largely guided by Merton toward an appreciation of my true self the one that can't be harmed by terror or poison or a bullet, the self known to God, the one we come to know in prayer and contemplation. I participated in my first ITMS meeting in 2007, as Teresa noted, 
and then joined a scholars retreat at Gethsemane later that year. I participated in subsequent ITMS meetings, spoken at the Chicago chapter of the Merton Society a few times, published in the Merton Seasonal, and then in 2018, Dan and I collaborated to put on a conference at CTU for the 50th anniversary of Merton's death. So my relationship with Merton has been long, but it's always been rooted in those moments at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st. There were moments when I matured into adulthood and embarked on this career that brought me to CTU and here with you tonight. And for me, much is how we find Merton at the end of Seven Story Mountain entering Gethsemane and learning of his brother's death. These are vocational commitments anchored in a sense of life's shortness and our utter dependence on God. But there's another sense in which I want to anchor these remarks in my relationship to Merton through Seven Story Mountain. In those moments when I came into a serious and ongoing relationship with Merton's writings, though we didn't know it then, one world was ending and another world was beginning. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 opened up a dreamlike interlude, the 1990s, a world of possibility where certainly there was discord and the seeds of polarization had been sown, but the promise of the American political system and the solidity of the Catholic Church seemed to offer sure bulwarks against the breakdown of our common life. Our public community was anchored in the shared sense of patriotism that some boundaries should not be crossed and the unity of the church that assured us we all believed in the same gospel, or at least so it seemed then. Given my coming to Merton in those days, I want to turn to Thomas Merton now to reflect a little on the crisis of authority that has unmoored us from those sure anchors and broken down the bulwark that once supported our sense of a shared life in the world together. Let me begin by locating this conversation with some specificity about what I mean by the word authority. I'm conscious that it might sound like I'm pining for authoritarianism when I speak of the goodness of authority, but authoritarianism is almost perfectly the opposite of what I mean by authority. Terminology sometimes is a problem, but we have the words we have. So let me attempt to clear up what I mean by authority by turning first to the 20th century political thinker, Hannah Arendt, who told us, since authority always demands obedience, it is commonly mistaken for some form of power or violence. Yet authority precludes the use of external means of coercion. Where force is used, authority itself has failed. Authority, on the other hand, is incompatible with persuasion, which presupposed equality and works through a process of argumentation. If authority is to be defined at all, then it must be in contradistinction to both coercion by force and persuasion through arguments. The authoritarian depends on coercion. Authoritarian regimes that abuse their power against their citizens are using force. And Arendt tells us that depending on force reflects a failure of what we mean by authority. Authority is something else. Authority is that which we do not need to be told to obey. Authority demands obedience, but the demand comes from an internal motivation rather than because of external coercion. There's no need for persuasion. We find ourselves already persuaded by what is really authority. We obey because we believe it's right to obey. Authority is about trust, the power of trust, but it is not ever an exercise of power we make against one another. Arendt used that phrase crisis of authority in this essay and her meaning about the crisis is as particular as her meaning about authority. Authority is built on the foundations of the past. 
Arendt tells us authority is pre-political. It is like tradition. It is a sense of continuity with the past. For Arendt, our crisis of authority is not a recent development, but it's been a slow evolving and metastasizing characteristic of the modern age. Our age has been built on overthrowing the authorities of the past. Think of the historical role the church played in public affairs, the power of kings, the oligarchic structure of feudalism. But look also to contemporary arguments about the Constitution's meaning. Does the original intent matter more than the law's living expression? And think about the divisive arguments we have about the authority of tradition in liturgy and in moral teaching in the Catholic Church. Much of what we experience as the modern world is really an argument about the authority of the past. Arendt hardly was arguing we should return to the medieval world. That would have been a strange thing for a Jewish woman to want. But Arendt is noticing that something has changed about our relationship to the world and each other. Something's gone missing from our lives. She's lamenting, we might say, the loss of a possibility of a shared sense of a recognized authority. Merton used the phrase crisis of authority really quite rarely, but I think we can say he was alert to the crisis in a way similar to how Arendt thought about it. Merton said, well, there we go. Merton said, there can be no question that the great crisis in the church today is the crisis of authority brought on by the fact that the church as an institution and organization has in practice usurped the place of the church as a community of persons united in love and in Christ. On the one hand, love is announced and instilled, but on the other, it is equated with obedience and conformity within the framework of an interpersonal corporation. This means too often that in practice, love is overshadowed by intolerance, suspicion, and fear. Authority becomes calculating and anxious and discredits itself by nervously suppressing an imagined opposition before the opposition really takes place. In so doing, it creates opposition. The church is preached as a communion, but it is run as a collectivity and even as a totalitarian collectivity. It may mean the complete destruction of the church as a powerful institution. Notice here how authority discredits itself by nervously suppressing an imagined opposition before the opposition really takes place. Now, I think I could spend much more time than has been allotted to me offering examples of occasions when the church has done that. For time's sake, I'm just going to take that as a given that the church has acted too often to suppress dissent by a calculating and anxious external demand for conformity and obedience. The church, Merton says, has used force which has cost it its authority. And we might say this has been a symptom of the church coming to grips with what the lost authority of the past in the world means for the church as an institution. Thus, the great crisis in the church today is the crisis of authority. But notice one more thing too, the use of coercion, the abuse of authority plays a role in division nervously suppressing an imagined opposition before the opposition really takes place. In so doing, it creates opposition. The loss of authority, Merton seems to say, creates a kind of a conflict, a polarization even. And this really brings us to today and to my purpose. Let me finally draw these thoughts together by appealing to a rather different and more contemporary source. Martin Gurry is a former CIA analyst who's written a provocative book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, in which he also tells us about the breakdown of authority and how it has become the defining crisis of our time. But Gurry's eye is not on authority as something that comes out of tradition, and neither does he really say much about the churches. 
Rather, Gurry's attention is on the information revolution of the last few decades. Gurry looks to the way that digital devices, the internet, social media have completely flattened the landscape because ordinary people have access to as much information as the experts. There's no such thing as authority in information any longer, which we might say is why there can be such widespread skepticism about public health data and public health guidance, or for that matter, why so many Catholics feel themselves as competent as the Pope to say what is Catholic and what isn't Catholic. This is Gurry. My thesis, he says, describes a world in which as a result of changes in information, information technology, two structural forces are found in permanent collision. The public organized in networks and government, that is authority, organized hierarchically. And Gurry is even more descriptive. He says, the information technologies of the 21st century have enabled the public composed of amateurs, people from nowhere, to break the power of the political hierarchies of the industrial age. The result hasn't been a completed revolution in the matter of 1789 and 1917, or utter collapse as in 1991, but more like the prolonged period of instability that preceded the settlement of Westphalia in 1648. Neither side can wipe out the other. A resolution when it comes may well defy the terms of the struggle, but none is remotely visible as I write these lines. Here again, the crisis of authority drives conflict. Because we cannot agree on any shared authority to settle a conflict, we become mired in conflicts we can't escape. Our present crisis then is a crisis of authority. Though it's a complex crisis with several dimensions, I'm convinced it is one crisis all the same. Arendt tells us about how we've become cut off from the authority of tradition and the past in our politics. Merton describes for us the church's own complicity in the crisis of authority that cuts us off from tradition and the past that has undermined its own authority by its recourses to force and coercion that stoke opposition by stifling imagined opposition. And Guri tells us why technologically and socially now there may not even be a possibility of authority in the way our social reality always has understood and accepted it. At the end of a progressive centuries long transformation of our relationship to authority, we are left in a situation where every opinion not only is equally contestable and equally authoritative, but also every opinion can be broadcast widely, find an audience, reshape the public conversation, and intensify our polarized divisions. The public overwhelms authority. So where does this leave us? That's a good question. And it would be expecting a lot for me to have an answer in a 20 minute presentation. But since we're gathered to talk about Merton, let me gesture into his direction for at least an inkling of hope. Let me point to another theme that emerges throughout Merton's writings, and it's a more familiar theme. It's a call to spiritual maturity and an awareness that our time demands something different from believers. I think of the story we find about the Buddhist monk in Merton's Bangkok remarks just before his death. From now on, everybody stands on his own feet. And I think of how Merton interpreted it. This is, I think, what Buddhism is about, what Christianity is about, what monasticism is about, if you understand it in terms of grace. It's not a Pelagian statement by any means, but a statement to the effect that we can no longer rely on being supported by structures. You can't rely on structures. The time for relying on structures has disappeared. They're good and they should help us and we should do the best we can with them, but they may be taken away 
And if everything's taken away, what do you do next? If I'm right that the great challenge of our time, socially in the church, and as the church faces the social world, is this crisis of authority, then what we really have to do is imagine a new way of relating to one another, a way of getting along without structures, the comfortable authorities that we've depended on, and which have ordered the world so that it mostly has been more peaceful because the decline of authorities has fueled conflict. To say the least, this won't be easy. There's no roadmap for a new order of human relations, which may not be a grandiose way to describe the scope of the problem. Yet I also do believe that the cultivation of an inner life and the message of our great religious traditions, as much as the common message found in monastic experience, does offer us a well of resources from which to begin. Because what we must do in the absence of authority is find some new way to trust. Authority is about trust, I said earlier. Authority also creates trust in a social sense because we all together recognize and trust an authority. I trust that you trust the same thing that I do. We must find a new social resource for trust. And when we think about our social climate today, the leveled playing field where we find no trusted authorities, the only source of trust that remains is us. Merton said elsewhere, at the root of all war is fear. Not so much the fear men have of one another as the fear they have of everything. It's not merely that they don't trust one another. They don't trust themselves. If they are not sure when someone else may turn around and kill them, they're still less sure when they may turn around and kill themselves. They can't trust anything because they've ceased to believe in God. Or we might say, they've given up on authority. In a particular way, I would want to remind us of what Merton said about the church's role in the crisis of authority, that the church as an institution and organization has in practice usurped the place of the church as a community of persons united in love and united in Christ. That the church should have been preparing us to live as a community trusting one another was obvious at least as early as 1968 when Merton said it. The church's failure even 54 years ago to have done it already had deepened the crisis of authority. How much deeper it is now. But the answer is no less the same. We must become the sources of social trust in the crowded public space without authorities, or there will only be conflict. And here I'd add too, I think the synodal way Pope Francis is offering uh, may bear fruit as a way to establish trust in one another. In this gaze, whether we mean conflict as we would have in Merton's life, whether we mean conflict in Vietnam, or the threat of nuclear conflict or the conflict in the streets over civil rights, Merton's wisdom applies as surely as it applies today to the polarizing conflicts in which we find ourselves. I think there's no certain way for us to proceed except that we must recover a way to believe in God without the comforting structures, the authorities we once looked to as bulwarks and anchors. Everybody stands on his own feet. Yes, but then we must still walk together. And for that, I can think of many good guides, but none better than Thomas Merton. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Steve, for that. <clears throat> Pretty amazing amount of material shared in a fairly <laughs> brief time. So I, I'm uh, I'm stunned. Well, I, I I have. I'll I'll be stunned if it was clear. Oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna help you understand what I didn't see as clear, and that's because of my own uh, staying with you. So fascinating topic and and I would invite people still to submit questions if you'd like during the 
through the chat, I will monitor those, but we have a couple that have come in. Um, one is a really interesting question from Terry Cochran, who basically, I, I'm rephrasing it a bit. Can you talk about the relationship of authority to the magisterium? Um, yeah, I would say that um, the magisterium is an expression of authority. Um, what we really mean by authority, and, and, and it's important to say that um, authority itself isn't something that's defined officially. It's not something that an institution can create. Uh, if it's created by an institution, if we're told we have to believe it, well, then, then it doesn't really work as authority. But we can think of the magisterium as a type of authority because we believe, um, if we believe as Catholics, uh, we believe that the spirit works through the church and we believe that what the church receives from the spirit uh, is, is that which, which, which comes from God, uh, revealed truth. Um, and so uh, revealed truth, if we feel the truth of it ourselves and our acceptance of it, um, then in that sense, we're feeling authority. Uh, authority can have many forms though. And you know, Hannah Arendt talks about the authority of something like the founding of the United States. She goes on for a bit about this, the importance of founding documents like the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, the founding moment, that these memories, this connection to the past creates a feeling of the authority of the past. And it's that authority of the past, again, that, that we recognize. Uh, we all recognize it together. I recognize it, you recognize it, we realize we're recognizing the same thing. Uh, that's what creates social community. Uh, the sense of a shared continuity with the past. But I'll say last, we also sort of have it in families uh, in the way that we gather around grandparents or older aunts and uncles and listen to stories and sort of keep a memory alive, some authoritative sense of what the family is as a family group. We recognize this authority together and it has authority because we recognize it. That's interesting. That, that leads me to, <clears throat> to a question I was I was very much aware of early on in your conversation. Um, I've thought about authority, but I haven't thought about it in the same way I think you were, and that's why it's so much fun for me to hear that. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a Quaker. I've never been a Catholic. I hang out with Catholics a lot, but as at least if I have understood it, our, our church polity or the way we understand authority is really pretty different. You come out of the Episcopal authority, authority system, and and mine is very congregational, so um, no one person can make the decision for a Quaker group, whereas um, maybe I'm under some illusion, but, you know, the, the bishop, the archbishop, and on up to the pope has a certain kind of authority that, that no Quaker is about to give to anybody else who's human anyway. Um, can you talk a bit about the different kinds of what I would call authority structures within the Christian, the larger Christian community, Catholic and, and Gallen, non Catholic. we lost your audio. Oh, I've got it. Was that for me, uh, Teresa? Yes, now, now I can hear you again. Okay, can you comment on what I would call the variety of um, structures of authority between say the congregational system and um, the Catholic hierarchical Episcopal system? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert on that by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I, I would make a couple of observations because it, it bears on the next book I'm working on. Um, I, you know, obviously there are a number of structures of authority within the Christian experience that have evolved over the last two millennia, but even within the Roman Catholic experience, uh, the, the awareness of, um, I, I wouldn't call it congregational authority, but I would say you know, the awareness of the, the sense of the faithful and the awareness of the church, uh, not just as a hierarchical uh, Episcopal structure, structure of authority, but also as a, a horizontal community of all of the baptized. Uh, this has become a much more important part of the Catholic reflection on how we experience authority. And, and that really authority functions best when those, those two dimensions intersect. But to think about it a little bit more broadly than the Roman Catholic experience, I think what I would say is 
Um, if we look back to the beginning, if we look back to the, the, the early Christian communities of the first couple of centuries of Christianity, uh, what, what did they do? Uh, they gathered as an ecclesia. Uh, and this is a Greek word that doesn't mean church. Uh, it, it would be surprising to people of that time that ecclesiology has come to mean what it means today, particularly in a Roman Catholic context. Uh, the ecclesia was, was a, a gathering. It was an assembly. It was assembly of people gathered to do public work, to do liturgy, uh, to reenact these important experiences, because the reenactment of these things uh, was a creation of shared memory around experiences that were felt to be authoritative. It's about being connected to authoritative moments of the past. I, I think that uh, some of what Merton was saying to us in that interview with O'Donnell that I quoted him from was that, you know, perhaps through the long Middle Ages, the church wandered a little bit away from the best source of its authority by behaving in, in a little too hierarchical a fashion, by being a little too top-down in its sense of, of what authority was. And in doing that, it, it, it really undermined its own authority ultimately. Uh, it, that, that sort of hierarchical approach was, was dangerous to, to the real authority that in the end, uh, people need to feel in order for a sense of legitimacy to exist. So I, I'm, I'm grateful in a way that we live in a time when these kinds of interreligious conversations brought about something like the Second Vatican Council, uh, so we could recover a little bit of that in my tradition. But I, I would say um, that congregational sense of the community assembled has never been far from Christian experience, uh, officially not even in the Catholic uh, experience, although, although sometimes we've, we've worked hard to hide it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm really intrigued that that you've done as much with authority as you have and as little with power as you did because um, <laughs> those two are often talked about together although they're obviously not the same could you give us a little sense of uh, does authority gain power does it have a particular kind of power that's different so could you could you deal with power and authority um in a way that you you haven't quite done yet this evening. Well, I, I think I, you know I've again I'm a political theorist. I'm you know I'm, I'm a sort of a strange guy. Dan Haran would be the first one to agree about that. Um, my my sense of my sense of authority, and certainly in the way that I use it, is is really uh, quite confined to a, a groundbreaking essay Hannah Arendt wrote, the one that I quoted, "What is Authority?" that appears in in her collection between past and future. And she says there, of course, as, as I've quoted her, that the power is always present when we talk about authority. Um, but what, what we have to notice is whether that power is um, coming from the outside in or whether it's proceeding from the inside out. And I think that's the critical dimension maybe that you're asking me about. Authority is a kind of power. Uh, and, and to be sure, political leadership or ecclesial leadership really can't function without authority. There needs to be authority uh, because another way to describe authority would be a sense of legitimacy. Actions are legitimate or illegitimate to the degree that they, 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 uh, they express some sort of authority. Um, but, but authority is much more powerful in the sense that if we recognize an authority and are motivated by our own recognition of that authority to obey something, that's a very hard thing to displace. Uh, it's very hard to convince people that they are wrong um, about, about what they believe is right. And, and that's really what authority is about. Um, in, in the sense of external coercion, of course, once you have that, uh, if you need to resort to external coercion, you've acknowledged out and open that you don't have authority. Uh, you don't have legitimacy. The fact that I have to put a sword to your back to make you do something says, I know I'm wrong, but I'm still going to make you do this. Um, and I'm going to know that you are wrong while you're making me do it. Um, power is, authority is very closely linked to power, but it's, I think, somewhat closer to what they used to call back in the 90s, uh, back in the, the days of uh, American exceptionalism and neoliberalism, uh, something a little closer to soft power, uh, the way that, um, we acculturate ourselves to expect certain things ought to be certain ways. Thank you. <clears throat> My fellow ITMS board member, Paul Pinkowski asks an interesting question. In imagining a new way of being together, 
Do you envision the possibility of alternative communities or are you thinking of something larger? Well, I, I think we'd have to ask the question, you know, in what context do we mean in a sort of a social and political context or do we mean in a church context? Um, I'm going to assume we mean in a sort of an ecclesial church context, uh, because that's normally where, where I hear alternative communities talked about a little bit more. Uh, and in there, I, I would have to say, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't have a plan. <laughs> I don't have a roadmap on this anymore, any much more than I really told you about. This is, these are tough civilizational centuries, centuries of scale questions. Um, but what I would say is that uh, it's very clear to me, at least in a Catholic orbit, that the old structures aren't working. Uh, our local parishes here are not doing well. There's not a lot of confidence in the institution. The institution has suffered some, um, some, some external problems, but it's also suffered no small number of self-inflicted internal ones. And so it seems very clear that the old medieval structure, which is really what we're talking about, uh, can't last much longer. And in that sense, things like the new ecclesial communities, but also intentional communities of all sorts, uh, all sorts of alternative communities, it seems to me, are where the real energy is uh, in the church today. Uh, they're certainly not at my parish. Uh, that's not where I see energy. Uh, so I, I would say we, we are all going to live through a period of experimentation and trial and error. Uh, this is going to take much longer than anybody on this call is going to be alive uh, to really sort of sort out and figure out, which means I can say anything because who will ever prove me wrong. Um, but, but I do think, uh, you know, the time is ripe for trying new things. I would definitely say that. Maybe one more comment. Um, I'm very much aware that the synodality uh, thing is going on now. Do you see that as as uh, relevant to our discussion on authority and and uh, any prognosis about some long term effect of that that Francis is underway with now? Well, I only wanted to gesture to it because that, of course, is a whole other universe of very complicated and unfamiliar things to try to open up. Um, but but I do think. Um, I've always thought that Pope Francis is very self-consciously playing a very long game and knows that, that um, much, much as I'm describing here, the, the kinds of problems we're talking about can't be addressed in the duration of one papacy, no matter how long it might be. But I do think uh, what he hopes with the synodal way that is slowly being opened up uh, is to nudge us toward thinking past the kinds of traditional ways of structuring the community that we have thought through, which are you know, very vertical as opposed to very horizontal. Uh, what's telling, uh, and this is you know, perhaps uh, to, to illustrate um, the, the, at least one way in which Merton was quite right even a very long time ago, uh, what's quite telling is, is the kind of resistance uh, that the synodal way gets. And we might ask, well, why does the synodal way encounter so much resistance? And, and the answer, you know, certainly has to be <clears throat> that it, it lacks for people who are, uh, who are resisting it, it, it seems to lack authority because we have become so accustomed uh, in the Roman Catholic world to thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, to thinking about authority as something that comes uh, directly from Rome in a, in a vertical straight line. I think what Pope Francis is hoping to do is not to change the church with one synod uh, and not to change the church with one global consultation, <clears throat> even if it's the largest uh, consultation of human beings as far as we know has ever taken place. I think what he is hoping to do is to alert us first that it's possible uh, to talk to one another as equals, uh, to listen to one another as a community and to gain a sense of the community. I think his bet is that once we have done that, we'll find out that we can get a sense of our community, uh, that we can listen to one another and discover what the church is that way. And once we've done that, of course, that will have authority because we will have created it. It will have come from our experience and, and we will have found the truth of it. Um, 
I'm somebody who, who always says that uh, I was making that uh, sort of etymological note about the ecclesia earlier as being an assembly. I'm somebody who always says that being in a church community is not so different from being in a political community, really. Uh, because um, both of these are assemblies of people gathered together around some shared conception of, of what holds us together, what unites us, and what good we're all aiming at. Um, what we need to do, I think, is rediscover a little bit of that uh, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, but there are an awful lot of resources uh, in, that come from the past, that come from our tradition, that tell us we can do that. Uh, I, th I think Francis is trying to make it safe for us to discover that. Well, I appreciate that. And <clears throat> you may have actually taken us through the back door to a discussion of trust, which is what I wanted to, to also get into. I, I was I was fascinated by how you brought the theme of trust into the discussion of authority. I'm not sure that one had ever occurred to me. So I appreciate that. Um, I love the phrase you talked about, imagining a new way of relating to one another and that the source of trust is us. We are the sources of social trust. And then I was interested, how do we become, how do you imagine we become sources of social trust? Um, boy, uh, <laughs> that would be a million dollar idea, wouldn't it? Um, we'll split. <laughs> I, I, I think something like the synodal way is the answer to sort of begin there. Um, but but what I, I what I think I want to say even more than that is is and I don't know that this came forward quite as much as I would have wanted it to in, in the prepared remarks, um, but I, I think for as much as we seem to be living in a time of disaffiliation and we seem to be living in a time where the churches are having it really hard, I think the real opportunity um, for our communities, Catholic, Quaker, whomever, Jewish, sick. Uh, the, the real opportunity for our communities is to demonstrate in the social spaces that we go out into um, that it is possible uh, to just simply take the leap of faith of trusting one another. Now, of course, we're not going to be very good witnesses to that unless we do it inside our own churches. And while we're the Roman Catholic Church, we have a little trouble with that. We've got some, we've got some house cleaning to do before we can do that. Um, <laughs> Stygian house cleaning, but nevertheless, just house cleaning. Um, but, but I would say, you know, that's the opportunity for us. I think that's the space that we can step into. How to create trust in the social community, uh, I think, depends on noticing that believers are also part of the social community. And that's the leaven. Uh, that, that's a real opportunity for us to bring to the social community today. Uh, but it's got to begin from a well of faith. It's got to begin from an experience of trust and community among believers. Uh, it's got to begin from our sense. I mean, if you, if you are a believer, then I think you instinctively understand something of authority in the way that I and Arendt are trying to talk about it. Um, and that to bring that sense of authority, which is just a variety of social trust. It is, as I say, just realizing that you, Alan, and I, Steve, both recognize the same authority. Oh, God, now I can trust you. Um, or to put it a different way, you know, the way Augustine put it 1,500 years ago, you know, we're a community united by our, 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 our love of the same object, our love of the same good. Um, that's another way of describing the role that authority plays. We're, we're, we're existing today um, under a lot of social and technological and other pressure that makes that harder. But I don't think we believe any less. And, and I also think that our social communities had to have begun somehow. You know, we, we didn't, we weren't just born into the polis, you know, these things were created out of human experiences and, and they're going to need to be recreated out of human experiences. But I think it's space that believers are, 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 are well-suited to fill. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and I was thinking certainly for, for myself, I, I, if faith and trust aren't really, if they're not the same, they're really pretty close. And, um, so when you're talking about trust, for me, you're implicating faith and what you just said there uh, further implicates it. Uh, Bonnie Thurston has a, a wonderful comment that's going to 
allow us to hook back to where you began by talking more on a personal note. Uh, let me let me share what Bonnie shared. When in Mark's gospel, she's talking about people speak of Jesus as having authority. The Greek word is exousia, which literally means out of being, ousia. The tr true authority comes from the inside out, exactly what Merton was intimidating, intim intimating with his description of the true self. So I'd invite you to comment maybe on what Bonnie is saying. And then you talked about the true self and referencing that right at the outset. Maybe you could hook it into that and um, yeah. say a few more things there. Yeah, let's go into the deep part. Um, you know, um, I'm going to draw a blank because I'm a Catholic, so I, I never have a, a scriptural citation very readily at hand. Um, but I, I think very often of, um, of, of Paul's description of seeing only partially as, as through a looking glass. Um, that um, our human, 1 Corinthians 13, thank you. <laughs> I depend on the Franciscans for this. Um, <laughs> um, our, our human wisdom is really quite slight. Um, and, and yet we all, I think, participate in something unseen that we sense. I think this is the important role that, that, that social communities play for us. Um, or at least it's, it's, it's my take that um, we rely on one another to reveal the parts that I don't see. Um, and in relying on one another in that way, I discover the thing that is truest about me that I can only partially sense. I know my participation in it, um, and, and, and I know that it comes from the ground of being, um, to use language that, uh, well, to use language that we use sometimes in political theory. Uh, I, I know that it comes from the ground of being. I know that it's, um, my loosely tethered connection to being uh, in, in this mortal life that I'm living. But, but over time, our species, I think, discloses the much fuller picture to one another. And of course, uh, then if we believe that uh, Christ is God made human, it only stands to reason Christologically, it seems to me, although I'd defer to a Franciscan who teaches Christology, uh, but it only seems to make sense to me Christologically that, that the fullness of that, that authority, uh, that speaking from being would subsist in, in the Christ that we believe in. Uh, that only stands to reason. But I, but I would then go further to say then too, that, um, that as that metaphor uh, of, of we, the Christian community, being the living body of Christ reappears a couple of times in the New Testament, um, if that be true, and I'll say that it is, then again, that's the reason why we discover the truth of existence, uh, not alone, uh, but rather together in community. Uh, we discover the truth of existence because I'll never find it all by myself. I need everybody else's perspective to widen uh, my lens. Uh, but there again, I'm talking about these ways that we, that we acquire intimations of authority. Uh, we get an imperfect, but nevertheless, you know, a, a, a distinct perspective on, on what's true and what's lasting and what should command our obedience. Thank you. I'm going to stay with that early period and <clears throat> pick up a, a, a question from your friend and mine, Dan Horan who says you, you began your presentation with us tonight by referencing how reading Merton uh, came out of that period, 9-11 and subsequent uh, times in your own life. Given everything that is happening in the world today, what do you think is the most significant place Merton's legacy can speak to today? Or how can it speak to everything that's happening today? Wow. Um, I'll struggle to have a good answer to that. I think um, 
there are at least three Mertens, right? There's the literary Merton that we'll sort of bracket off because I'm not sure that's who we're talking about here. Uh, there's the Merton of monasticism and the church, and then there's Merton, the social critic, Merton, the, the citizen. Um, let me try to answer two of those together. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the presentations that I've made with the Merton Society over the years have been around the theme of how Merton's sense of monastic life bears on a better way to be citizens, tells us a better way to be citizens, which not coincidentally uh, is a better way to be members of the church. Um, because again, I think these two things are very closely related. Um, you know, you know I, I think the best answer to that question then that I can give is, is finally, um, strangely, actually, sometimes I think I'll come back to the literary Merton. I'm sorry, I'm a little all over the place. It's a great question and I'm, uh, I wanna do it justice, but I think you know, sometimes the, the place where I find maybe the best answer to this question is in the poetry, because maybe in the end, um, the most important legacy we have from Merton is silence. Um, the most important legacy we have from Merton is not a silence that isolates us from the world, but rather the silence that draws us into greater sympathy with one another, greater awareness of the mercy that we've been given and that we owe to one another. Um, and that these things need to shape the ways that we engage one another socially, but certainly also need to be much more a part of the church. Uh, in the end, I think it's, uh, it's silence itself, maybe that speaks the loudest. I you're getting close there. to my heart with it being a Quaker. We're, we're pretty, we're pretty Absolutely. keen silence. In fact, it's a wonderful uh, place to resort to when you're not sure what to say. All right, a, a lovely question from Bob Grip. I suspect that uh, it interests me and I'm not, uh, Catholics would have even probably more interesting uh, perspectives. Is there a middle ground to be found between the church of Pope Francis and those who long for a return to the Latin mass and longing for that church, so to speak? Silence when you don't know what to say. <laughs> You know, uh, it's a terrible thing for uh, the director of the Bernadine Center who has custodianship of the Catholic Common Ground Initiative to say, but um, I sort of despair that there is middle ground to be found, at least in the near term. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the crisis of authority tonight. It's one of the reasons that I mentioned um, those Catholics who, feel a greater authority to speak about what's Catholic than the Pope does. Um, or for that matter, the magisterium does. Um, the, the whole sense of the, the church. I think, um, I think what we have to recognize and what I always have to remind myself of, and if there's anybody here who follows me on Twitter, I'll just apologize to all of you because I give into this way too often on Twitter, certainly. Um, but I think it's important for all of us to remember that it's probably a noisy minority uh, and a really small minority who are really the problem. Uh, the trouble is the trouble they stir up. The trouble is the people that they stir to action. Uh, if there's any hope of middle ground, then I, I think it's got to be found by reclaiming some of the space that's taken up by that noisy minority and reminding all of us that we're meant to be one community together, uh, standing together around and, and, and with the Pope, uh, standing around together uh, in the community. Um, but I, I think we've really come so far down a road at this point, it's, it's become quite clear in the last year or so. Um, it, it, that's not a near-term prospect. Uh, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of patience, and I hope it can happen. But as I sit here today, um, I, I have to remind myself it's a noisy minority, but, but boy, it's a lot of trouble. And I, I guess what I would probably, I'd like to circle back to the trust piece now, and I'm thinking as you just talked, how, how does trust become possible or possible again when you find yourself in an either or situation? 
What do you mean by an either or situation? Um, it's either the Latin mass or that's the way we're going to do it. Um, well, well, you know, the, the, your so way or my way, it's either yeah. or. Here's the problem is, you know, what, what that question ought to be is, is, you know, an invitation to dialogue. The difficulty is what all of those questions, all those either ors really redound to is the fact that we've, we've got a group of people who insist dialogues, dialogue lacks authority. Uh, that, that dialogue lacks legitimacy, that dialogue's not trustworthy. And that's a very difficult position to be in. Once you've decided you can't enter into, di enter into dialogue, how do you actually function as a community? Uh, that, that's the real challenge. Uh, and, and, you know, we here in the Bernadine Center and the Catholic Common Ground Initiative particularly uh, really have, have bore witness to, to trying to promote that dialogue with people who won't for, for now more than 25 years. Uh, it, it's a terrific challenge that hasn't gotten any easier. And it's, it's among the reasons why I, uh, I, I would like to present a more hopeful face about it, but I just can't quite do it. But, we have to continue doing it. Um, I think it's for every day though this goes on, the work, the time that it will take to do the work grows longer. Uh, there, there's not a near term solution. Uh, we, we, the answer is we have to see those either ors as invitations to, to sit down and talk with one another. Um, but there, there are a lot more incentives to get clicks and followers and in men, too many cases cash uh, by promoting the division that comes from not talking. Yeah, I'd like to pose probably one last question as we get towards the top of the hour here. I was intrigued earlier in your uh, presentation about, you're talking about the church's institution and then you talked about community. And I don't know whether it's institution versus community. I, I wouldn't be that, that rash, but I mean, I, I personally am really intrigued with community. When you're talking about institution, I'm still teaching in an undergraduate situation and so many of them are the nuns, those who have left the institution, if not, yeah. you know, religion as a whole. Um, some of it's about the institution, some of it's clearly about God. Um, I'm wondering, could you, can institutions find a way to become communities, or is it really institutions or community? Could you fill that in a bit for me now, and, and then we'll throw it back to Teresa. I'll do my best. Uh, I really think that uh, fundamentally, the human animal is an evolved creature, and we don't change all that much, really. The circumstances around us do, and we adapt to them. But in the end, we are social creatures. And uh, in social situations, we do tend to look for hierarchies. You know, however those hierarchies behave, we tend to identify leaders. It's a thing that we do. And that tends to beget institutions over time. Um, we're living, as I say, in a moment where, where those instincts are challenged and it's challenging our nature, I think, in a way. Um, but I also think we're not gonna change all that much. What I, what I think is the right answer to your question is I think and I hope that institutions are going to learn to behave a little bit more communally. And there's another word here that I'd use and a little less bureaucratically, uh, a little less indifferently to the people who are the communities that in fact give life to institutions. Because in the end, institutions and communities aren't different things. The institutional church and the people of God, in fact, are the same thing. They're just different dimensions of the same thing. Uh, what we really have to do is reunite them a little bit uh, and, and create a better sense that institutions only exist for persons, uh, only exist for communities of persons. Uh, and it's only then that the search for the common good really gets underway. Thank you so very much, Stephen, uh, for your presentation today. Um, you certainly widened my lens by bringing to this uh, Tuesdays with Merton your background in uh, as a political theorist and uh, addressing the subjects that we haven't addressed before in Merton authority, the crisis of authority. So we're so very grateful for you to be for having been with us this evening. Uh, I also want to thank Father Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. Alan Culp uh, for once again so skillfully moderating the questions. Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube. Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. And you can find links to the recordings of previous webinars and soon this one at merton.org slash ITMS. 
There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to help underwrite such programs as Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for next month's Tuesdays with Merton, when Bellarmine Professor Greg Hillis will address the question, what does Thomas Merton have to tell us about Catholic identity? To register, go to merton.org ITMS. So now once more, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in March.